welcome back to our series on Mariology here at Theology and Reality. Today, I want to start the beginning of the end of our time here on our Mariology series. We've got just a couple episodes left before we get to our summer book club and everything that we'll get into starting in the fall. So today I want to start with a two-episode arc on the Assumption. So on the, the mystery and the teaching of Mary's Assumption. So this is something that is not explicitly revealed in Scripture. That much, I think, is obvious, but some are of the opinion that this is a truth that we might call virtually revealed. That is, that it's something implicitly contained within other revealed truths. So the revelation of the Immaculate Conception in Gabriel's greeting, combined with a few other things like the vision of John in the Apocalypse, uh, it's in keeping with our understanding of Mary's role as the New Eve, and of course, not to mention the other resurrections, for instance, that occurred at the time of the Passion as recorded by Matthew. And so keeping these things in mind, all of this data can be levied to show that Mary's assumption as passed down in the tradition of the church is logically coherent and fitting. Now, regardless of whether or not this particular stance is correct, that it's virtually revealed, it at least demonstrates the manner in which we are to understand much of the meaning, the why of the assumption. So there are some early accounts of this mystery, often referred to as the transits of Mary's or the passing over, in the second and third century, for instance. So there are a number of accounts of Mary's passing from this world to the next. Now, these particular post-apostolic accounts in, in writing seem to be of an apocryphal or pseudepigraphal nature. And so the question comes, you know, how much weight should we give to these as purely a function of the church's popular memory? On the one hand, we could say, as with many other second and third century texts that we, that are not canonical, but also aren't considered to be sort of genuine Christian teaching either. They don't seem to be trustworthy in their precise details right, because of their apocryphal nature, but they are truthful in this sense. They do seem to be truthful in the sense that they pass on the principal idea right, that Mary is assumed into heaven. One of the things that many apologists point to and that, I, that seems to be a, a really interesting point of fact is that there is a complete lack of Marian relics concerning her person and body. And this is relatively, or even more than more than relatively, this is this is quite surprising if in fact she'd been sort of buried and kept and preserved as was typical of everyone else. Right? Um, there's there are accounts in the early church, I think of Polycarp, right? In the martyrdom of Polycarp, his remains are immediately scooped up and buried, and liturgies are said over his bones almost immediately. Right? So his relics are gathered and protected as early as the second century. 
Now, as to Mary's death, this is an interesting question because that's obviously a question that comes before the actual assumption. The majority opinion in the tradition, which sometimes people are surprised to hear, is that Mary did in fact die. The minority opinion, that which few people have held, is that Mary passed immediately from this life to the next, to the life of resurrected glory immediately. Now, the dogmatic definition of Mary's assumption does leave this question ambiguous. Right? The, the, the exact language used is this. Having completed the course of her earthly life, she was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. So you can see how that doesn't sort of come down hard on one side or the other. It is a little bit ambiguous, but the majority opinion is that Mary died, which is, you know, would, would be fitting. We can talk about that in a moment. Now, the transitus literature, right, these uh, second, third, early, sort of early accounts of this event, they are also overwhelmingly mortalist in nature. In other words, they're overwhelmingly on the side that she did in fact die. And some accounts even posit that there were up to 200 days that fell in between her death and assumption. Okay, so that's just a little bit of the historical detail. So how does the assumption relate to other Marian teachings, other things we've been talking about over the last few months? So first, in relation to her divine motherhood, in Mary's divine maternity, she begins to exist in a new way, as really and personally related to the Holy Trinity by virtue of her physical union with the Word incarnate, with Jesus Christ in her womb. Now, having been brought into the hypostatic order in this manner, it would seem to be fitting that she continue to be united to her son even in death. The perfect filial love that Christ would invariably have had for his mother would result in a gift that corresponds to this love. So the question, of course, is this. Is the assumption a necessary conclusion to this hypostatic relation and bond of love? Or is it merely fitting, perhaps even extremely fitting, for this to be the case? Okay, so that's that's how it relates to her, her motherhood of, of our Lord. So how does this relate to the Immaculate Conception? One theory runs thusly. Scripture seems to say rather clearly that death is a punishment for sin, right? So if there would be any human person who avoided sin completely, death would hold no sway over them, as they would have merited immortality in that sense. And so Mary under this aspect, would have merited immortality and glorification on account of the grace of her status as the Immaculate One. And so she would be assumed into heaven, body, and soul in her transference from the state of grace to the state of glory. It's, um, you know, to, to think of a, a simple example, it's kind of like the automatic renewal of a trial period of a subscription that you get that moves immediately from a free trial to you know, paid subscription. It's kind of this immediate transfer. So now the objection to this, of course, is that Mary is not some new species of creature, 
right? She's still a human being. She's still a member of the race of Adam. She's still mortal. And all of this, right? She, there's, in, in a sense, she still owes a debt because of this. Now, she was not a new woman unrelated to Israel or to humanity at large. That's the first thing to just insist on, right? So she's not created anew, right? She's not a kind of new species. She's not created out of the earth like Adam. She has a real relation to Israel first and to the human race second. Uh, second, she, she still needs redemption, as we saw a few lectures ago, and we talked about the Immaculate Conception and her relationship to sin. Right? So she still needs redemption. Therefore, she never had a natural right to the state of justice and its correlative exclusion of death. So that's that's the objection, right? So even if we want to say she's excluded from death because she has no relation to sin, we still have to deal with the fact that she's still related to Israel. She's related to the human race. She's related to Adam. She still needs redemption. And so there's no natural right to this state of justice and being excluded from death. That's the objection. Now, Mary might be exempt from suffering death specifically as a punishment for sin, but it doesn't mean that she is to avoid death per se, right? If Mary is subject to death, then there needs to be an additional step to justify or demonstrate the assumption. There's no immediate conclusion, uh, as with our, our, you know, our previous argument. The 20th century Catholic theologian Charles Journet offers an intriguing possibility. He argues that 1 Corinthians 15, which you can go read and see if you follow his, his argument here, see if you agree, see if it sounds right. He argues that 1 Corinthians 15 is a revelation of the fact that the resurrection of the dead is postponed for all those affected by sin. Right? So the fact that we don't die and are immediately brought into glory and resurrection is also on account of sin. And so by way of negation, all those not affected by sin are exempt from that general rule of needing to wait until the second coming and the general resurrection. So what could we, you know, what, what, what could we conclude from these things? It seems like the assumption might not be formally contained with the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. It's true, but it does go far in revealing its fittiness and its beauty. The Immaculate Conception, the perfection of Mary's integrity of body and soul, seemed to strongly be a point in favor of the assumption as the sustaining perfection of her created perfection. And so in this view, it's actually perhaps more fitting that Mary die so as to be in lockstep harmony with her son. All right, let's conclude there for now. We'll finish this topic next week, and we'll get into a number of different other issues related to her perpetual virginity, how the assumption is related to her role as the co-redemptrix, and even a little bit of info from modern science that's actually in favor of this kind of teaching. So until then, thank you so much. Tune in next time.